You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to. The Life Tree Community Church Podcast. So we're kicking off a new series tonight called our, you ready for this? Our Summer of Psalms. Yeah, you like that, right? The Summer of Psalms. Now we're just going to put P in front of every S word that we got all summer long just to have some fun with it. Um, no, not really, but spell check is a bugger when you do that a lot. Let me tell you, it keeps wanting to autocorrect. Um, so just some context. So what we're going to do is we're going to look through a different psalm every week throughout this summer. And so just anticipating that perhaps some of you might go on vacation. And you might be watching this now when you're currently on vacation, and that's why you're not here. Um, but uh, so each week it'll just be a unique psalm, and we're going to look at the psalms and see what can we glean from them. And the psalms are interesting. You know, we, we know them. They're quoted often and often misunderstood, often, uh, I guess, uh, theologically misapplied so many times people uh, don't really know how to interpret the psalms Um, they are filled with humanity that's what you need to know about the psalms these are emotions these are people's deepest soul pouring out uh, to others right and so the psalms are really songs or they're poetry so uh, and people don't we don't always think of it this way but the the scriptures are actually the bible's a, a literature piece as well and there's different forms of literature. Some of you like narrative. The Bible's got some of that. Stories, right? It's telling stories. It's got um, fables, parables, right? So that's, it's not a literal story, right? It's just a figurative story. Jesus says once, you know, there was a good Samaritan. It didn't actually happen. It's just a, a story he told, an illustration. So there's, there's, there's the, that, right? There's actual narrative. There's historical narrative. There's genealogies, which is just sort of you're reading through that. Then there's There are letters written from one to another, and so you'd interpret that as a letter written from one to another. All different types of literary forms. The Psalms falls into what we call wisdom literature, poetic, things like that. And so Psalms, Proverbs, these are people's, uh, their lyrics, their their heart songs, right? Their um, laments, their celebrations, their expressions of the soul. Sometimes their overreactions, sometimes their... Uh, highly uh, volatile, and you're going, really? Is this? And so the, the, the important thing is not that the Psalms are useless for theology to understand God. They are very valuable in understanding who God is, but they cannot be interpreted independent of the rest of Scripture. So if you want to understand the theology that is being expressed, what, and theology is like the truth about God, if we're trying to understand the truth about God through people's feelings, We have to also filter it through the rest of what Scripture says to make sure that what they're expressing in their emotion is true. Because there are times people express things to God that aren't necessarily right. (laughs) And so you can't understand the Psalms independent of everything else. Make sense? All right. Hopefully. All right. So I'm going to start off with just a story for some of you hunters out there. I don't know if any of you are hunters, any hunters. I know the entire Serenese family. We got a few. All right. So back... Yeah, it's Tennessee. There you go. Uh, We got some hunters. So two hunters were out in the woods, and they came across a bear that was so big. I mean, so how big was it? It was so big, right? This bear was so big that they just dropped their guns, and they were like, forget this. One guy climbs up a tree. The other guy runs in a cave, and they're they're just hiding. Well, the, the bear's just content that he's got dinner, so he sits down in between them. He's just, you know, thinking about his good fortune. I got, I got dinner here. I got, I got, you know, I got dinner and I got, you know, dessert. I just get to pick whichever one comes out first, you know, here you go. And uh, so he's sitting there. And suddenly, for no apparent reason, the guy in the cave runs out. 
almost to the bear, pauses and runs back in. I guess a few minutes later, that happens again, right? He runs uh, out and almost to the bear again, and then he runs back in. The third time he does it, the guy up the tree is like, hey, Woody, what are you doing? Stay in the cave until the bear leaves. And panting, Woody goes, can't. There's another bear in the cave. <laughs> right? Have you ever found yourself in a complicated situation? In a dilemma, right? Stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? We call them catch-22s, if you remember the literature piece, right? There's a book about this and the history, the history there, you know? No matter, that's fiction, but you, you understand the reference. No matter what you do, when you're in one of those dilemmas, somebody somewhere is going to get it, <laughs> right? So you know that this, it's just tough situation you're stuck somebody's going to suffer because of the decision you make now imagine if you will that you're a pastor having to make a decision about whether to stay on saturday nights or move to sunday mornings okay and like no matter what you do somebody's going to be angry you move my church right like and some people are going to love it and other people are going to hate it right um, if you go to Sundays, right, those who may be on Saturdays are like, I'm not going with you. And people are like, well, I'll come back if you go to Sundays. Now, this is just hypothetical, right? I'm not announcing anything. It's not, like, there's nothing happening. I'm just saying, you know, could you imagine a situation like that? But the reality is that's not just as simple as Saturday night or Sunday morning. That's a complex decision because there are other factors that affect that decision, right? There are facility-type decisions that go into that. And then there are scheduling type decisions that go into that. And there are financial implications of that decision, right? As well as people and teams and, oh yeah, 12 years of history that sort of impact that singular decision. So there's, it's a complex decision. It's a, it's a dilemma. Um, so many of the decisions that you make on a day-to-day -day basis are complicated. It's not as simple as somebody else thinks. It might be from the surface. It's got layers to it. You know it, right? Everybody else may not understand it, but you, and you go, eh, and they go, why'd you do that? And you go, too much to explain. I just did it. That's all you need to know. Like there's just, you know, you got this feeling because you know all of the different things that are going to ripple out from that decision. Should you move? That's not as simple as should I. Should you change jobs? Should you pursue the promotion? right? Should you have more kids? Should you stop having kids? Should you buy this? Should you invest in that? Should you walk through the open door? Should you tell them or not? <gasps> it's just not as simple as you think it is. It's complicated. And when we find ourselves in complicated situations, we should absolutely turn to God for the wisdom that we need in that moment. James talked about it last week, right? What should we do in those situations? Listen. We should absolutely be listening. Okay, so why are we here? Well, let me ask you this question. What happens if you caused the situation? What happens if you're the reason you're in the dilemma in the first place? What if your actions are the reason you are where you are? Didn't that just make a complicated situation more complex? 
because now you've got oh, guilt and regret and all this sort of like, oh, people don't know, but I'm sort of the, at fault here. And so, right? And we can feel in those moments, if we're not careful, we can let the complexity of life keep us from calling on God when we need him most. Because I got myself into this. God's not going to get me out of it. It's my fault. I'm here. Nobody ever felt that way, right? We can feel like maybe God won't help me this time because I deserve this, right? That's the idea behind karma, right? That's the essence of it is that I got what I deserved. So what do you do when your problems are your fault? And I told you we're going to explore the Psalms. Um, And one of the fascinating parts of the book of Psalms is that periodically as you're reading through these poems and songs, we're occasionally given the gift of context. We are told the context for the song or the poem or the literature of what we're about to read. The first one we're going to explore today is written by King David precisely in a circumstance that he was ultimately the cause of. Right? What he writes, I believe, is going to give us insight into how we can respond when we find, not if, but when we find ourselves in circumstances like that. When we find ourselves going, man, this is not a good thing and I did this. I did this, this is my fault. How do we handle that? So we're going to read the psalm first, and then what we're going to do is I'm then going to give you the backstory, and then we're going to read it again. Okay, so I'm going to read the psalm, we're going to go into the backstory, and then we're going to read it again, and maybe that second time we're going to hear it with some different ears. Okay, so here's the psalm. Psalm chapter 3, verse 1, it'll be on the screen. It says this, O Lord, I have so many enemies, so many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him interlude okay verse three but you O lord are a shield around me you are my glory the one who holds my head high keep going i cried out to the lord and he answered me from his holy mountain interlude here we go verse five i lay down and slept yet i woke up in safety for the lord was watching over me i am not afraid of ten thousand enemies who surround me on every side Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Here we go. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that as we look at your word, as we understand, Lord, what you have revealed to us through your holy scriptures, God, help us see this, Lord, through eyes that span time. Let us not be bound by this moment, but let us understand the context Let us understand the truth that is in here that impacts our lives today, now, July 2nd, 2022. Help us to, Lord, be able to extract the eternal truth from this text. It's in your good name we pray. Amen. So we're told that this psalm was written regarding the time that David, the king, fled from his son Absalom. Okay, you may know the story, you may not. If you don't, it's okay, I'm going to tell it. I'm going to summarize it really quickly. So Absalom is the third son of the famous King David, right? King David of antiquity. King David, right? So he has several, many children, and he has a couple of boys, one, two, three, third son, Absalom. And Absalom has a sister named Tamar, okay? And he has 18 other stepbrothers, (laughs) at least that many. That's what we know, right? All we know about Absalom is that he has one sister named Tamar. He may have had more, probably, but he's got 18 other stepbrothers that David had with other, other women, okay? And his oldest stepbrother, David's firstborn, right, is a young man named 
Amnon. Amnon. And don't judge. Different time in history. We've got to see it differently. But Amnon falls desperately in love with Tamar, his stepbrother's sister. Like I said, different time in history, whatever. The story is what it is. One of the things about the Bible, it doesn't sugarcoat anything. It just is what it is, right? It's weird, yeah, whatever. But Amnon becomes so obsessed with Tamar that it says he becomes physically ill. You ever, ever have, you know, people like that, they just, they just want something so bad it consumes them? That's Amnon, firstborn son of David, the king. It says eventually he devises a plan and he rapes his sister. Abs, it's awful, terrible. And as so often happens for people who just are consumed by selfish desires, instantly, as soon as that happens, he then despises her more than he loves her. And he says, now get out of my sight. I don't want to see you. And so now, now she's resorted to a life of shame. She's, she's a marked person in that society. And she goes to live as a desolate woman in the house of her brother, Absalom, okay? So Absalom, third son, older brother, and something bad to his sister. Now let's pause. Absalom, do you know what his name means? Okay, two words here. Ab, ab, father. Abba, ab, right, father. Shalom, shalom, father of peace. Hmm. His name means father of peace. He was to be a peacemaker. He was to be the father of peace, the one who brings, who makes all things right, not the one who covers over. That's not peace. That's not shalom. Shalom means right relationship with everybody, everywhere. Everything is as it should be. That's his name. He's the one who makes things right. So he's got this sense in him, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's his name. That's wrong. What happened to my sister? So dad, David, you're going to make this right, aren't you? You're going to make this True and good, aren't you, Dad? You're going to take care of this, aren't you, Dad? And King David heard what happened. He was angry. And though Absalom never spoke to Amnon about this, he hated his brother deeply because of what he'd done to his sister. And David did nothing. Nothing. Oh, how would you feel if you're Absalom? <clears throat> Dad, what are you doing? You are failing me. You are failing our family. You are failing my sister. Father of peace, more like father of silence. Eventually, Absalom gets his revenge, kills his half-brother. He takes it out on him and says, all right, listen, Dad, you're not going to do something? I will. I'm going to kill him, make him pay for what he did. So then what do you think David did this time? He mourns for Amnon, the son who who did what was wrong that he didn't deal with, he mourns for him. Absalom flees the kingdom because David is so angry for three years. David did nothing. It says he wanted to reconcile with his son, but for some reason David couldn't bring himself to do it. He couldn't bring himself to make it right with Absalom. And eventually, through the acts of others, David gives Absalom permission to come back. He says, you can come back, but I don't want to see you. And for another two years, Absalom is in the kingdom, but no better than if he'd left. So now five years, five years, he's estranged from his father. And he had enough, and essentially he's begging and pleading for reconciliation. And David relents, and they see each other again and embrace. 
but can I tell you the damage was done? Absalom decided at that point that he was tired of serving a father like that, tired of serving a king like that, and he wanted to be king next. His oldest brother's dead. There's still 18 of them. So it's as much as mine as anybody's, and he decides I'm going to claim the kingdom. So he basically wins the hearts of the people, and eventually he declares a rebellion, and he says, I'm going to be the new king. As a messenger arrives in Jerusalem to tell David, all Israel has joined Absalom in a rebellion against you. And David says, we've we got to leave at once. We're going to have to run out of here. He says, if we get out of the city before Absalom arrives, both we and the city of Jerusalem will be spared from disaster. We could spend weeks on this. There's so much in this story here. But just think about this. Rather than fight back, David, like a good king now, thinks of what will be best for the city rather than just best for himself. Right? So he decides to leave and says, okay, if Absalom wants the kingdom, I'm not going to fight for it. And so he basically hands the kingdom over to Absalom, says, it's yours, man, I'm not going to fight for this. And as they're leaving, David instructs the priest to take the Ark of God, which they were trying to take with David to kind of symbolize that David's the rightful king. Ark of God is with David. This is the rightful king. David says, take it back to the city. And he says this statement, and it's so, so powerful. He says, if the Lord sees fit... He will bring me back into the city. He will bring me back to see the ark and the tabernacle again. But if he is through with me, let him do what seems best to him. It's such a profound statement. If the Lord sees fit, it epitomizes humility. God, he's saying, you write the story. You made me king. You write the story. You know you're going to bring me back if this is good. And if it's not good for me, that's not a fight I want to undertake. I'm not going to fight against you, God. So again, I want to pause now. The complexity of emotions here. Let's think about how complicated, so we can go even back a little farther. David, shepherd boy, youngest of seven brothers, made fun of by his brothers, anointed king. The brothers are just, they're brutal to him. You, you're nothing. And now he's got to wait 15 years while he watches the actual king grow more and more hostile to him, King Saul. David's got a story that is so complicated. Anointed by God, chosen for his heart right? Suffering along the way. Now here he is, his own son trying to take the kingdom from him, a kingdom he refused to take from the guy before him, is being taken from him. A great book, Tale of Three Kings, if you haven't read it, kind of details this story. It says his own son is taking the kingdom. He doesn't have the strength to fight back because he knows he failed as a father. Complicated, and you can hear in his voice that David is no longer the young, brash, fearless soldier that took down Goliath. This is a weary soul who has had more than his share of victories and defeats. He has done things right and he's done things wrong. David's got a whole past that's living in his head. And ultimately, you can make a case that Absalom's rebellion in this situation is David's fault. This is a son whose dad dropped the ball big time. So, with that in mind, let's read Psalm chapter 3 again. Let's hear it again now. Oh Lord, I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying God will never rescue him. Interlude. 
But you, O Lord, you're a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain interlude. I laid down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. Arise, O Lord. Rescue me, my God. Slap all my enemies in the face. Shatter the teeth of the wicked. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. So let's start with so many. So many. Let me ask you, is it true that he has so many enemies? Mm Mm-hmm. Is it true that so many are against him? Mm Mm-hmm. Is it true what so many are saying that God will never rescue him? I mean, it's not hard to believe. David made this bed, and now he's got to sleep in it. God, you hear what they're saying. It's certainly believable, but is it true? And this is why the music of this song is so important, because it says interlude. You know what interlude means? It's really the Hebrew word selah. It means to lift up, to exalt, and it signifies a pause in the music, a rest. God, so many, so many, so many. A pause. When we feel like things are going off the rails, And it certainly seems believable that God is against us and we are rightfully to blame for circumstances we find ourselves in. Can I encourage you to have your own interlude? To pause and rest for a moment because that will afford you an opportunity to listen and remember who God is. See, we can get so caught up in who we are and what we've done and what we deserve, and we can be me, 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 God, you know my story. Shame, 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 guilt, guilt, guilt. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. Breathe. Breathe. Remind yourself who he is. Because but you, O Lord. So many, but you, O Lord. You are a shield to all who call on you, no matter their history. But you, O Lord, you are our glory. Lord, you are our worth. It comes from your presence in us no matter what I've done. But you, O Lord, you are the one who lifts up my head when I am down and out. See, this whole psalm is a study in contrast. So people say versus what is true. What circumstances look like versus what they actually are. We feel attacked, right? Deposed, hated, finished failure. That's what David felt. But he was shielded and glorified and lifted up. It's what David does versus what God does. I failed. God, I cry out. And God, you answer. God, David lays down, it says, weary. He sleeps He's vulnerable. Will you go to sleep with all of that turmoil? It says he sleeps, and guess what? God watches over. 
the result is that David says, I'm not afraid. Whatever happens, whatever happens, I'm not going to be afraid. David didn't sing this with the belief that God was going to ignore his past and make everything better. It wasn't like, God, you're going to fix it all. David sang this with the faith that God was good and would do what was right, however it turns out. Right? This is the same David who we just read, a few more, who said, if the Lord sees fit, he's going to bring me back. And if not, David isn't singing this with the belief that God's going to make it all better. He's saying, however, I'm not going to fear because I know who you are. However you do this will be right. Here's what David understood that we can too. When we find ourselves in complicated situations and we're not sure how to pray, remember this, God is wise enough to do what is right by everybody. God is wise enough to do what is right by everybody. We don't have to worry about God taking sides. God, how can I pray for you to bless me when I've got such a complicated past, when I deserve to be here? God, how can I possibly invite you into this situation when I know I deserve it? How do we do that? We don't have to worry about God bending the rules for us because you know why he says, I'm just. Isaiah 61, again, we, we reference other texts to understand. Isaiah says, I, the Lord, love justice. I love justice. He is justice. He, what does he require his followers? Do justice. Right? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for justice. So here's a question. Let's just pause for a moment. What about Absalom? What about him? From history we know he ends up losing his life as a result of this. How was that just? His dad blew it. It's not his fault that all that stuff happened. How is that just? Something God's been kind of revealing to me is this. What Absalom did was understandable. Absolutely understandable. You can go back and look and go, it makes sense. But just because it's understandable doesn't make it acceptable. Mm. that's hard. Listen, God didn't choose Absalom as king. He was operating on his own in that. God never told him to go take the kingdom. He was doing that out of his own anger, out of his own sense of vengeance. He was acting out of hurt. He was wronged by his father, absolutely. That does not justify his rebellion. God will always do what is right and just. Man, it's tough sometimes. It's complicated. But we can trust that God will always do what is good and right for everybody. Additionally, God is gracious and merciful, which means that we're not done for just because we messed up. Even if we deserve all the pain and suffering we may find ourselves in, he is our just protector. We can ask God to be our shield. In those moments you go, God, I don't know, we can ask God to be our shield, and he goes, I will. I don't deserve it, God. We can ask God, God, can you hold up my head? And he goes, I will. We can ask God to give us peace, even though it may feel like so many things, so many forces are attacking us, 
And God says, I will. He is big enough to do what is right by everybody. And when we find ourselves in deep waters, no matter how we got there, no matter how we got there, we need to run to God. Because he is wise and good and will always be our shield and our glory and the lifter of our head. And I tell you, refuse to let the complexity of your past keep you from calling on him. Refuse to allow the complexity of your past to keep you from God, no matter how you found yourself where you are. Think about this for a moment. David is on the run from his son. The kingdom looks like it's being taken from him. He knows it's largely due to his shortcomings. And he says, I lay down and I slept without fear. He says, even if 10,000 armies surrounded him, he'd still lay down and sleep in peace without fear. How many of you could use some sleep like that? You, man, doctors give you pills and all sorts of stuff. We get all sorts of remedies to try and get us to sleep like that. To sleep like a sense we say, yeah, I'm here, it's guilt, it's shame, it's fear, it's all of this stuff, but I'm just going to go to sleep in peace and wake up without fear because God is watching over me. I don't even deserve it. God is watching over me. Can I just encourage you, if you need some restful sleep, cry out to God because he's going to hear you and he will do what is right by you. And you don't have to worry about what he's doing for everybody else because he will do right by them too. I'm going to close our service with communion. And hopefully you got elements. And if you didn't get elements, you can just raise your hand. Our ushers will make sure that you get it. Um, each month on the first Saturday, we take time to remember Jesus' death on the cross for us. We have bread or something that's supposed to resemble bread. It's gluten-free wafer. It tastes like styrofoam. But this is meant to be bread, and this is a cup. And it's supposed to symbolize the body and blood of Jesus. See, the bread, you know what the bread is? It's evidence of God's justice. It's evidence of God's justice. Somebody had to pay for the sins of humanity, and God couldn't just say, oh, you're good, don't worry about it. Somebody had to pay the price. And God said, okay, you know what, I'm going to pay it. I'm so just, I, I can't just let it go. The bread reminds us that in the physical body of Jesus, somebody paid the price. God is just. For all the wrong we've ever done, for all your past, for all those things you regret, the shame, all that mountain, that list you keep, the scoreboard in your head of all the things that you did that you you don't deserve because of that. God says, hey, I paid for it. I don't just wipe it away. I paid for it. And the cup, well, the cup is evidence of God's grace and mercy. Justice, grace and mercy. He loves us fully aware of our failures. That when he went to the cross, he knew what he was doing. And he listens to us even when we're far away from him. If we turn to him wherever we are, however we got there, he will come to us. Let me tell you, how good is God? How good is God? If 
perhaps you're a guest with us or you're listening for the first time. You are welcome to participate with us. If you have never, uh, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, that's all you need. You don't need to be a member of Life Tree or anything like that. If you have made the commitment to accept Jesus as your Savior, if you are a follower of Jesus, you say, listen, I welcome Jesus to lead me. I acknowledge this, that he's done this for me. You are welcome to participate with us. And if you've yet to make that decision, uh, listen, please don't feel any pressure to participate. This is a judgment-free zone, right? This isn't about, we're not looking around. This is between us. This is a corporate thing that we do, but it's very personal between each one of us and God. But if you've yet to make that decision, maybe you're watching online or wherever you are, and you would like to, I just encourage you, just speak to God directly. That's all you need to do. There's no middleman. You don't need to talk to me. You don't need to tell anybody else. You can go directly to the man himself. Tell him, listen, God, I believe you are who you say you are. And I know that I'm not perfect. God, and that your justice demands that I pay for this, for what I've done wrong. But that because of Jesus, I don't have to pay anymore. God, I, I accept that you did that for me. That's all. If you acknowledge that, that his death was simply an act of love for you that's 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 what it means to be part of the family of god it just means that you respond to god's great love for you you don't have to do anything other than say god i believe it i accept it if you do that that's what it means to be a follower of you to say god i believe that's what you do and now i just want you to make me more like you so we're just going to take a moment we're going to share communion and thank god one for his justice and two we're going to thank god for his grace and his mercy in our lives that so many say these things about us, God. So many reasons we have enemies and so many reasons. But you, oh God, you're my shield, my protector, and the lifter of my head. Oh, man. So good. So good. So let's just take a moment. Would you just pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bread. God, we thank you for what it represents in our lives. Lord, that it reminds us that you had so much love for us that you were willing to step out from eternity into this world to lay down your life in exchange for ours because your justice demands it. You make all wrongs right. You will not leave any of them unatoned for. So God, you had to do it completely and so you gave yourself. Lord, it was the greatest act of justice this world has ever seen and will ever see. And you did it for us. God, I thank you. Lord, we repent of what we've done. We acknowledge we need your forgiveness. And so, God, we just thank you. We, we celebrate what you've done for us, Lord. We're so blessed, Lord, that you considered us. Who were we? But you considered us. We thank you, and we love you. It's in your good name we pray. Let's eat together. Now, if you'll take the cup, let's take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this cup. It represents your blood poured out. Lord, the blood that makes us new. It washes away, Lord, that when you look at us now, no longer do you see someone in need of justice, but now, you, Lord, you see us as completely acceptable in your sight. Lord, we are Lord, made acceptable by what your Son did for us. Lord, what... What mercy and what grace. Lord, we don't deserve it, 
And that is the truth of what you've done for us, is that all of this is undeserved. It's a love act. Lord, you gave it in love for us. So God, I ask that as we just, just receive this together, would you help us to understand how much we're loved, Lord, what a gift it is, and to walk, Lord, and to live our lives, to live our lives quick to turn to you, not to hide because of shame and guilt, but to run to you because of what you've done for us. Lord, just like David, who refused to allow the complexities of his guilt and his shame and his past to keep him from you, Lord, likewise would we continually, because of this cup, continually run to you. Because you said we got access to you. We can boldly come to your throne when we need grace and mercy most. We come to you today. It's in your good name we pray, Lord. Amen. Let's drink together.